Well, it is good to be with you all again. Spent um, last weekend in Albany, New York. Don't be too jealous. It was lovely. It was like 70 degrees and clear blue skies and went hiking in a mountain trail. It was fantastic. While you were melting away down here, I'm sorry. But I'm back, so I'm experiencing all the same thing. Thank you uh, to Neil. I don't know if he's in the room right now. Neil Payne led the way for us last week, preached God's word to you. wanted to uh, say thanks to him publicly for uh, leading in that way. We're going to pick up our study in Galatians, so I invite you to grab your Bible and uh, turn there. of water before I cough on you again. In the 1982 Best Picture Oscar winner, Chariots of Fire, which is primarily the story of Christian Olympic runner Eric Little, there's a scene where one of his competitors, a guy named Harold Abrahams, is preparing for a race in the Olympics, and he's terrified. And he confides to a friend, I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. He goes on to confess, I'm scared. And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, and only ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? He wonders. That's a terrifying prospect for life. But how many of us are living our lives in much the same way? Not in terms probably of athletic prowess, but in spiritual success. Almost entirely oblivious to the shackles that it's placed around our souls. How often do we quietly, even subconsciously, believe that we have to earn our way into God's good graces by a steadily improving religious performance? How many of us are privately terrified, much like Harold Abrahams, that our entire existence hinges on our performance and we're just not sure that we're going to measure up? That's the central crisis in the book of Galatians, and it's the Apostle Paul's primary burden to remove the weights of self-justification from our shoulders by pointing us back time and time again to the all-important reality of our total acceptance with God and righteous standing before him on the basis of his free grace in Christ through simple faith. Over and over again in Galatians, that is what Paul is driving home. Today we'll be in Galatians 4, and uh, I'm going to point out to you that the title and scope of the passage that are reflected in your bulletin are no longer accurate, because I bit off way more than I could chew. And so I hoped I could get all the way through verse 20, and so the title of the sermon is actually taken from a phrase that we won't look at today. I decided late in the game to cut this thing off at verse 11. So we're only looking at four verses this morning, and trust me, that's for your good. So, um, and we'll look at verses 12 through 20 next week. A little bit of background of where we've come in the book of Galatians, very quickly, to set the scene here. In chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 9, Paul admonished the young Gentile Christians in Galatia that they were in danger of abandoning God by beginning to believe a false gospel, namely that they, Gentiles, needed to observe Jewish Mosaic law in order to be acceptable to God. Gentiles had to become more Jewish in order to be acceptable. And he spends a significant portion of chapters 1 and 2 defending his own credentials as God's appointed messenger and the authenticity of his message as originating from God himself. I am God's appointed messenger, and the gospel I preach is not man's gospel, but God's gospel. And he goes to some lengths to sort of demonstrate that his ministry is from God. And so he's not speaking on his own behalf. He's not speaking of his own sort of self-appointed authority, but he speaks for God. In the middle of chapter 2, he established his thesis that no one is justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the thesis of the book of Galatians. No one is justified, that is declared righteous before God. No one is justified by works of the law, but only through faith in Christ. In chapter 3, he fleshes that out, enumerating the various blessings that flow to Christians through faith. A few of those receiving the Holy Spirit, being counted as righteous, being redeemed from the curse of the law, being united to Christ and to Christ's people, becoming heirs of God's promises to Abraham, and receiving adoption as sons, which he expounded specifically upon in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So now, in chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, he further drives home his thesis the justification is not by the law, but by faith, by identifying the futility of law-based righteousness and by pointing to the surpassing wonder of living in God's love. And so our two organizing points for today in your notes, are number one, the slavery of self-justification, the slavery of self-justification, and number two, the freedom of God's love. And we'll take those in turn. Let me read for you the four verses that we will unpack together this morning. Galatians chapter 4, beginning of verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. May God open his word to us this morning with clarity and belief. The slavery of self-justification. The theme of slavery governs this paragraph. And I want you to notice that there are two kinds of spiritual slavery here. There's, there's a slavery of immorality and a slavery of morality on the other side. There's a slavery of self-indulgence on the one hand and a slavery of self-righteousness on the other. A slavery of law rejecting and a slavery of law keeping. There are two kinds of spiritual slavery. 
And what holds them together, the common thread that these different kinds of slavery share, is that they are all attempts at self-justification, self-salvation projects. I don't need anybody else. I can save myself. And some take the, the lane, the direction of self-salvation by licentiousness, by freedom. I can do whatever I want. Some take the road of self-justification of, I can keep the law. I can be really good. I can be morally upright and sort of earn my place with God. They're all forms of self-justification, and they are all enslaving. So let's look at where these two kinds of slavery come from within the text. First, he begins by saying, formerly, so he's looking back to when the Galatian Christians were not yet believers, all right, so in your unregenerated state, in your pre-Christ days, formerly you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, false gods, those who put forward as though they were deities, as though they were powers to be reckoned with, but they weren't really God. Idols. Of course, pagan religion in the Roman Empire entailed plenty of actual idol worship, temples that were dedicated to supposed deities, religious rituals that included all kinds of perversions and immorality. This was a part of the religion of the day in the Roman Empire and certainly in the region of Galatia as well. And certainly many of the Galatian Christians had previously participated in those very things. So at one level, when Paul says to the Galatians, you were enslaved to things that by nature were not gods, he's pointing to their actual participation in pagan idol worship. You worshipped gods, lowercase g, air quotes, abounding, who weren't really God at all. And I think it's the same idea that he expresses a few phrases later where he says that you were enslaved, excuse me, or you're turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. So he's looking back there and saying that what you were enslaved to were the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. That's kind of a strange phrase. He said it back in verse 3 saying that when we were children, we were enslaved to those elementary principles. He uses that phrase again in the book of Colossians. The Greeks understood the, the universe to be comprised of four basic elements, earth, water, air, fire, right? And often those elements were either worshipped themselves or were sort of uh, assigned deities who oversaw each of those elements, you know, like Poseidon, the god of the sea that sort of thing. And so the elements of the world were actually thought to be controlling, governing forces, and so there were these false gods attached to them, and so people would actually worship the god of the sea or the god of fire or, or whatever it, it would be. And so the weak and elementary principles of the world refer specifically, especially to the pagan idol worship, right? The pagan religion and these false gods that the Galatians would have been worshiping before they came to know the truth about God and his gospel. Now, not too many citizens of Greenville are worshiping Poseidon 
in 2022, but how many are bowing down at the altars of the arts and entertainment industry, or of sports and athletics, or of sexual pleasure and expression, wealth and social influence, political affiliations and activism. So we maybe don't name them as though they're actual gods, but trust me, we've got our idols. There's plenty of them in our culture. And by these standards, it's not hard to see that millions of Americans are enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. In other words, living our lives by some other principle, some other standard, with some other controlling force that isn't God himself at all. And in fact, I think there's an echo, there's a hint in this phrase of not just the bare uh, visible realities of the elements of the world or of these particular idols, but indeed of demonic power that sometimes is behind those things. Because, of course, the devil would love nothing more than to take people's eyes off of the true God and put them onto some false god and have them worship at that altar. That's what Satan wants. So when we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, when we're entrapped by some false worship, it's not a stretch to say that the devil himself is behind that idolatry. Indeed, you're sort of playing into the hands of the devil and his demons as you bow at the altar of these false gods. So before you knew God, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature were not gods. But now... And then we have a contrast. That was before you knew God. That was one kind of slavery, a slavery to false gods, a slavery to false deities, a slavery to some pursuit other than knowing God. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, he says, you want to be slaves again. And so then he refers back to that same thing, that weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, but now he's saying you're Christians. You've come to believe the gospel, you've come to know God in Jesus Christ, and yet you still prefer slavery. And what's the angle of the kind of slavery he sees here as a particular pitfall for these believing Galatian Christians? He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I believe Paul is referring here to the Mosaic law, that is to the religious festivals and rituals of the old covenant. You observe these things because that's been the theme, that's been the burden throughout this letter is that these false teachers have come to the churches in Galatia and said, you've got to start being more Jewish. You've got to be circumcised, and you've got to eat according to the Jewish dietary code. And so these days and months and seasons of years would fit right into that system of all of the festivals and rituals and religious observances that God had given to his people Israel under the Mosaic Covenant for a time, for a purpose of pointing forward to the fulfillment of all those promises in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, you are now going back to the observance of these, this mosaic law as though this is what is going to save you. Now again, the problem is not the law of God itself. 
Paul himself generally observed these things. And in fact, he says in verse 12 that you're not going to hear today uh, that I became like you, and so I want you to become like me. And I think what he means by that is for your sake, when I was among you as a Gentile audience, I stopped observing the Jewish laws and dietary codes and things for the sake of bringing the gospel to you. So Paul himself would not say the law is bad. He, in fact, is living by it in a certain way. The problem becomes when the keeping of the law, when the observing of the law is seen as the basis of our justification before God. So when the false teachers say to the Gentile Christians, the Galatian Christians, you need to obey the Mosaic law in order to be acceptable to God. And in order to truly belong to his people, we have taken what is good, the law of God, and elevated it and twisted it to a place that it cannot hold, that it is not designed to maintain. You are inclined, he's saying, to observe all the religious festivals and rituals of the old covenant because of the influence of these false teachers in your church. What other reason would a Gentile church have had for taking on Jewish Mosaic law from a previous century, a previous generation? It wouldn't have made sense except that they've been imposed upon this audience by these false teachers. They've left behind pagan idolatry and immoral indulgence, if you were, if you will. But now, by their subjugation to the Mosaic law, they're basically choosing the same old master for themselves. So you got rid of one kind of slavery when you came to know God. When you came to believe in the gospel, you moved away from the slavery of being enslaved to false gods and being involved in these pagan idol worship, worshiping at the altar of money or sex or whatever else it would be. But now, instead of living in the freedom of knowing God and being in his love, you're, you're choosing a new kind of slavery. You're taking on the law that's not intended to justify us, but intended to point out our sinfulness and our inability to be justified before God on our own. And you're living under it as though it will save you. And so you've chosen a new kind of slavery. So I hope you can see there's two different kinds of slavery in view here. There's the slavery of false worship, the slavery of self-indulgence, the slavery of maybe immorality. And on the other hand, there's the slavery of very good law-keeping morality. And the one looks pretty good. You might look at somebody who's living according to the law and go, wow, that guy's really got it together. But meanwhile... He doesn't know God at all. He's actually living in slavery. Before you knew God, you chose the slavery of idolatry and self-indulgence. Now that you know God, the slavery you're choosing instead is legalistic self-righteousness. It's earning your way, earning your standing before God. Both of them are slavery. Neither of them is able to save you. The religious moralist depending on his own righteousness, is just as cursed as the secular rebel who rejects all demands of morality altogether. He's not any better off. That actually is a little surprising to our sensibility. We think, okay, well, maybe he's depending too much on the law, but at least he's not doing all of these things. And Paul says he's just as lost as that one. 
The one who's depending on his own righteousness, his own ability to keep the law for his salvation, is equally cursed and separated from God as the rebel who just rejects all forms of moral constraint. You're not any better off. And in fact, perhaps the law-abiding self-righteousness kind of slavery is even more dangerous because it's insidious, it's, it's sneaky. The lawkeeper may feel himself to be close to God, but all the while is actually trusting in his own righteousness, and thus is just as far from God as the prodigal, not any better off, not any closer to God. The heart of the legalist looks at the road ahead of him and feels afraid. Can I measure up? Can I perform well enough to stay on God's good side? Can I justify my existence, to use the words of Harold Abrahams? No wonder Paul fears, in verse 11, that his ministry to the Galatians may have been a waste. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In other words, it seems as though the apparent belief and reception of the gospel that I witnessed among you might not have been true after all. may have only been skin deep because here you are preferring to go back into slavery instead of living in freedom. Two kinds of slavery. Both self-justifying slavery. The slavery of immorality and indulgence or the slavery of moral self-righteousness which one are you inclined toward in your flesh where does your heart lean does your heart lean push against the boundaries man i wish i wish this bible verse weren't here i wish i didn't have this requirement that i can't do this or that or the other thing is your heart inclined to like break loose let me out cast off restraint or is your heart more like I got I to get this right. I got to do the right thing. I got to follow the law. I got to take the right next step. I'm looking around, did they, th did they notice? Okay, they all seem to think I'm doing okay. Maybe I'm doing okay. Neither of those are good ways to live. Neither of them are freedom. Neither of them justifies you before God. But as sinners, we're all inclined in one direction or another. Perhaps in both directions at different times because we're all a confused mess, aren't we? Well, what's the alternative? He's frustrated. Paul is perplexed about them that they're choosing slavery. What is the alternative? What does he want them to choose? Praise God. He's given us one. He's given us an alternative. He's not left us to rot in self-loathing despair or in self-sufficient desperation. The alternative to the chains of slavery of either self-indulgence or self-righteousness is the freedom of God's love. Living in the freedom of God's love. And this all hinges on verse 9. Now that you have come to know God, or rather, he almost corrects himself, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. I like that he stops himself and rethinks. Now that you've come to know God, wait a minute, 
Really, you've come to be known by God. That's the bigger deal. The good news isn't so much knowing God, it's being known by him. That's really what the heart of the gospel is. It's that God sees you, God knows you, God takes notice of you, God takes you in. And that notion of of being known by God, over and against simply knowing God, points to a few things. Number one, it points to God's initiative, his turning toward us in love. You've come to know God. That is to be known by God. In other words, our knowing of God is a response to, a result of our being known by God. He knew us first. The Apostle John says, we love because he first loved us. It's the very same idea. So it points to God's initiative, his saving initiative in drawing near to sinners in grace and kindness and love, in turning his loving heart toward a sinner. He loves first. He knows first. And we know in response and love in response. Secondly, it points to the depth of relational investment and care that our Father has for us. You see, to know in the Bible means more than just to be aware of. It's more than just you have become aware of some facts about God, or God happens to be aware of your existence. Well, of course he's aware of your existence. He created you. Like, doesn't take a genius to figure that out. That's not what he means. He means something a lot deeper than you're aware of God and God is aware of you. It means to be in a loving relationship with someone. To be known by God is to be loved by God, to be drawn near by God, to be sheltered by God. You see, he has set his saving love and affection upon us, and that is what makes all the difference for us. And once you know this love, once you've experienced the safety and freedom of being known by God in this way, you can hear Paul's incredulity here, how can you go back? You've come to know God, rather to be known by God, to be loved by him, accepted by him, his favor and kindness and grace poured out on you, and you'd rather go be enslaved to the law? What are you thinking? What kind of life is that when you can live in the freedom of God's love, the confidence of his embrace, the knowledge of his acceptance of you? Why would you choose freedom? We need a shaking like this every now and then, don't we? This is what Paul's doing, grabbing these readers by the shoulders. Wake up to what you have in Christ. It's so much better than slavery, to self-indulgence, or to law-keeping. Richard Loveless says this, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy and jealousy and many other sins grow out of their fundamental insecurity. 
how much of the sin and divisiveness and, and anger and criticism and judgment that we give to others within the church and experience from others within the church stems from this. It stems from this insecurity because we don't really at a heart level believe that we are fully loved and accepted by God. So I better earn my way. I better look the part. I better make sure that at least all the people around me know that I've got it together or think that I've got it together. Maybe I won't fool God, but if I can fool other people around me, that'll be, that'll be pretty good. That'll be good enough. How much of our disagreements and our frustrations with each other and the bumping into one another that happens in the life of a church because we're all sinners, how much of those things stem from the fact that we don't really fully actually believe that we're loved and accepted by God completely without reference to your religious performance? Friend, if you are in Christ, you are known by God. And if you are known by God, you are loved by God. And if you are loved by God, you are kept by Him, held by Him, welcomed by Him, accepted by Him. That is what it means to be known by God. When you know you are freely loved and fully accepted by God, you no longer need to be impressive to anyone. You don't need to convince your family members or your friends or your pastors that you've got it all together. When you're confident in God's love and acceptance, you're free to confess your sins to another brother or sister in the church because being found out as a sinner is not a terrifying thought anymore. As Luther would say, yes, I'm a great sinner, but I have a greater Savior. Perhaps if our runner friend, Harold Abrahams, had experienced the freedom of God's love, he would have given up his feverish pursuit of who knows what. He didn't even know what he was chasing. And forsaken his need to justify himself by his performance. You see, when you live in the awareness that you are known by God, you no longer feel the compulsive need to justify yourself before him or before others. Because your soul is at rest in his steadfast love. When you're leaning on the everlasting arms of God, as the hymn says, you're safe and secure from all alarms. I'll close with, close with this line from Tim Keller. The great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. Friends, let's live in that freedom. Let's pray. Father, we